Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. In this sprint through British church history, you'll learn about King Henry VIII and his staggering act of supremacy when he pulled the Church of England out of Catholicism and appointed himself the head of the church. After Henry's death, England swayed back and forth as Henry's successors adopted Protestantism, then Catholicism, and then Protestantism again. Still, none of this tumult compares to the chaos of the English Civil Wars a century later, when a Protestant parliament executed a two-Catholic King Charles I for treason and initiated stringent puritanical laws throughout the land. You'll also learn about the persistent and tenacious John Knox, who was instrumental in bringing the Reformation to Scotland. This is Lecture 9 of a History of Christianity class called 500, from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen. Here now is Podcast 125, The Reformation in Britain. Welcome to number 9, Reformations in Britain. So tonight, what I want to talk to you about is Henry VIII, and his heirs, the English Revolution, and number three, Scotland. Those are the three topics. So Henry VIII was a really interesting man. He lived from 1491 to 1547, and he had several wives. In fact, six wives. Not all at the same time, though. All at different times. And so... The first of his wives was Catherine of Aragon. She married Henry in 1503. And she was a brilliantly educated woman from Spanish. She could read and write and speak Spanish and Latin. And she could also speak French and Greek. And she had a daughter named Mary, Mary Tudor. And we'll come back to her in a minute. But Catherine could not produce a male heir. She had a number of children. Most of them died early on, and Mary was the only one who survived. And so King Henry had what he called his great issue, which was twofold. One, how do I get a, a male heir? Because at the time it was unheard of to have a, a queen in England. That was all about to change. And the other was, how do I somehow get rid of my old wife and marry this mistress, Anne of Boleyn, who I'm really infatuated with? And so what he wanted to do was divorce Catherine, but being that he was a Catholic and that the Pope had given him special permission to marry her in the first place, he couldn't get a divorce or an annulment, which is uh, a, t a term that they would have used. Furthermore, Catherine's nephew was the emperor, Charles V, who had already sacked Rome and had his interaction with the Pope when the Pope crowned him. Michael Servetus was there at the coronation of Charles V. And so the, the Pope had no way politically or from a religious point of view to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And so what he ended up doing in the year 1534, although there was a lot that led up to this, was he pulled the church, he pulled England out of communion with the, the Roman Catholic Church. This is what we call a schism. He pulled his church out, and he declared himself the supreme head of the church. And 
he divorced his wife, Catherine, and he married Anne Boleyn in 1533. And so now we have essentially a Catholic England, but that's no longer beholden to the Pope of Rome. Now the church in England is responsible to answer to the government and to Henry VIII, who is the supreme head of the church, not the Pope of Rome. And so Anne Boleyn gives Henry a daughter named Elizabeth, to whom we will return in a few minutes. And she had no son. And she fell out of favor. And it's a long, juicy story. But in the end, she was beheaded by Henry VIII, who married Jane Seymour in 1536. So Anne Boleyn only lasted three years until we had Jane Seymour. And I won't get into all the complications of the rest of the stories here with Jane. And then Anne of Cleves, he married four years later. And then annulled his marriage with her pretty quickly. And married Catherine Howard for three years. And then finally Catherine Parr in 1543. And she's the only one of his wives that out, outlived him as, and, and still remained queen of England. And so... Jane Seymour, the first of this series of, of wives, bore to him a son named Edward before she died in childbirth. Edward came to be the one that everyone looked to as the next heir who would take over when Henry VIII died. I want to talk about his religious policies and get out of his personal life a little bit here and uh, explain to you how exactly Christianity changed in England during the time of Henry. These are what we call the Henrician reforms, the reforms of King Henry. One of the interesting things about him is that early on, the Pope had declared him a defender of the faith because he wrote against Luther. So Henry didn't really like Luther, and he wrote a treatise against him and attacked Luther. And so the Pope liked that very much and gave him this official title, Defender of the Faith. But then, of course, Henry pulled his whole entire country out of the Roman Catholic Church, at which point I think uh, the Pope was very upset. But one of the things that Henry did is he dissolved all of the monasteries and all of the convents in England, and he, he seized the land, and he ceased the operations of those monks and nuns, and he sold off the land to pay for his wars, most notably with France. Also, he hung 200 people because there was resistance to his 1534 act of supremacy when he declared himself basically to be the Pope of England. Some uh, people resisted his assertions as head of the church, and so he hung 200 of those people, or had him burn at the stake, one or the other. And during this time of, of England pulling away from the Roman Catholic Church, what we had was there were a lot of Protestants who had come into England and Protestant ideals that had entered England, and these people were taking advantage of the, the sort of change in the uh, spiritual atmosphere to start pushing through some reforms of their own. For example, his second wife, Anne Boleyn, was a Protestant herself, although maybe she kept that in the closet from the king, but she did uh, influence things in a Protestant way. And her daughter, Elizabeth, later on we'll talk about her, when she gets in power, she's clearly Protestant. She's clearly uh, trying to reform the Church of England. So anyhow, Protestants took advantage of the pulling away, and Thomas Cromwell, in uh, 1538, authorized uh, uh, an English Bible to be done under a man named Coverdale. That's in 1538. 
And then in 1539, Henry got wise to what the Protestants were doing in his empire and how they were trying to move England in the direction away from Catholicism, and he reacted. And so in 1539, we get what's called the Six Articles, where he reaffirmed traditional Catholic teaching on topics like transubstantiation, no cup for the people in communion, only the priest, chastity for clergy, no marriage for clergy, private masses, and confession. At this time, I want to just take a, a, a break from Henry and look at William Tyndale. William Tyndale really could belong in, in, in the, next, the next part where I talk about dissidents, people who disagree with the government. But he, his life overlapped with Henry, and so I want to cover him here. This is, this is William Tyndale. He lived from 1495 to 1536. He was born around the time Columbus was sailing the ocean blue, as a lot of these men were. And he graduated from Oxford in 1515, went to Cambridge to study. He was a gifted linguist. He was uh, able to operate in seven languages, including Greek, Latin, French, German, Spanish, Italian, and of course his native English. He was ordained a priest in 1521, and he immediately entered the house of Sir John Walsh and became the chaplain and domestic tutor. For two years, he's in this gentleman's house having dinner conversations with people who would visit, including these priests and abbots and deacons, and he would show them their error directly in Scripture. Now, just to get an idea of how strange that was, you remember I, I talked to you a few weeks ago about Menno Simons, who was also a Catholic priest like William Tyndale was, and he said that he never read the Bible once in, our, in, in his training to become a Catholic priest, or once he had become one in the monastery, he never read the Bible because he was afraid that he would fall into error by reading it. So this is, this is the same time period that we're in here when William Tyndale is really getting into the scriptures and he's having these conversations with people and he's pointing them to the book saying, look, this is what it says. And he's refuting people at the dinner table. He gets in trouble for that in 1522. He's called before John Bell, the chancellor of the Diocese of Worcester, and was released. There's this one famous moment at the dinner table when someone says to him that we would be better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. And Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And he said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than thou dost. And so that was the heart of William Tyndale. He wanted to get the Bible into the language of the people, English, so that the boy who drives the plow would be able to know the scripture competently as opposed to the people who could know it and didn't study it because they had a Latin education. So getting the Bible into English was his, his life's focus, his life's work. In 1523, he goes to Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall to ask permission to translate the scriptures into English, and the bishop says, absolutely not. You cannot translate the scriptures into English. Now, there was already an English Bible out there uh, by Wycliffe, but it was handwritten. It was before the printing press, and it was a, a very wooden, literal translation from the Latin. It was not a translation from the original. Tyndale's looking at the original Greek. He, hasn't, he doesn't have any Hebrew knowledge. He's just looking at the Greek for the New Testament. He's saying, we need to bring it from the original New Testament into English. And so he finds a, a cloth merchant by the name of Humphrey Mammoth to live with, and he preached and studied there. In 1524, he fled England 
things heated up for him. He fled England to the continent, and he may have even studied at Wittenberg with Luther during this time for about 12 years. And Tyndale was very displeased with this time that he had to spend away from his native England, from his homeland, and he wrote about it. And he talked about his pains and his poverty and his exile away from his natural country, his bitter absence from his friends, his hunger, his thirst, his cold, the great danger that he's afflicted with everywhere. In 1525, however, he finally finishes the first English New Testament in print and gets it smuggled back into England. And in 1526, it's printed and... By October, Tunstall, who had, he's the bishop that denied Tyndale the right to print the Bible or to translate it. Tunstall gathers together all the English Tyndale Bibles he can find, and he burns them publicly as a declaration that this is an evil document, this is full of errors, and that you shouldn't read it. To which Tyndale responded by deciding to learn Hebrew. So he starts learning Hebrew so that he could translate the Old Testament. And so he adds to his seven languages an eighth, and he picks up the Hebrew language, and he starts working at that. In 1529, he's finally condemned by the Church of England, Cardinal Wolsey, as a heretic. And he's still living in exile, so you, know, you, can, you can declare someone a heretic all you want in England, but if they're living in Germany, it doesn't do much. Over there in 1530, he publishes, and he fi or he finishes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He finishes these, the English translation from the original Hebrew. And he also in 1530 writes a book called The Practice of the Prelates, in which he opposed Henry VIII's divorce as unscriptural. How do you think that made Henry feel about Tyndale, who's already declared a heretic by the religious experts in the area, but now he's, he's getting involved. It's almost like John the Baptist, right? Didn't he write, or he didn't write something, but he, he went to Herod, and he said, you cannot marry your brother's wife. That's what Henry VIII had done. He had married his brother's wife, and then he wanted to divorce her in order to marry Anne Boleyn. And so uh, Tyndale uh, reproved him for that, and Henry VIII at this point asked the Emperor Charles V to give him Tyndale and bring him back to England so he could answer for himself. In 1531, he finishes the book of Jonah. He keeps working. In 1534, he comes out with a new edition of the New Testament, thoroughly revised. And then in 1535, finally a man by the name of Henry Phillips befriends himself to Tyndale and over a long period gains his trust and betrays him to the authorities and gets him arrested. He's charged with heresy. Now, back then, to get charged with heresy, that very many times has a death penalty attached to it. It's not like calling somebody unorthodox today. You know, it, it's, it's a very serious, life-threatening thing to say. And uh, he's in prison for 18 months. Tyndale writes the following from his cell in prison. He says, I believe, most excellent sir, that you are not unacquainted with the decision reached concerning me. On which account I beseech your lordship, even by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to pass the winter here, to urge upon the Lord Commissary, if he will deign, 
to send me from my goods in his keeping a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold in the head, being troubled with the continual catarrh, which is aggravated in this prison vault. A warmer coat also, for that which I have is very thin. Also cloth for repairing my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. The shirts also are worn out. He has a woolen shirt of mine, if he will please send it. I have also with him leggings of heavier cloth or for overwear. He likewise has warmer nightcaps. I also ask for leave to use a lamp in the evening, for it is tiresome to sit alone in the dark. Really gives you an incredible perspective on what is going on in the uh, prison cell. I had mentioned to you this before, I forget who it was in reference to, Michael Cervatus, that how prison conditions were so horrible. Here we have an eyewitness account saying, it's cold in here. That's basically what we just read. It's cold in here. It's dark in here. It's, it sounds almost like solitary confinement. He's just asking for some sort of common decency. He's not even asking for them to provide him with prison clothes. He's like, I have my own clothes. Just let my clothes in so that I can be warm and not sit in the dark. And then he says, but above all, I beg and entreat you, your clemency, earnestly to intercede with the Lord Commissary that he would deign to allow me the use of my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew lexicon, that I might employ my time with that study. Thus, likewise, may you obtain what you most desire, saving that it further the salvation of your soul. But if before the end of winter a different decision be reached concerning me, I shall be patient and submit to the will of God. To the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ, my Lord, whose spirit may ever direct your heart. Amen. This is one of the last bits of communication that Tyndale is able to get out, this letter. That was in September. By October 6, 1536, he is tied to a stake and strangled by the executioner. Now, he was strangled and then he was burned because he, had, he was a priest. And so they wanted to be merciful to him, and so they strangled him first, and then they burned him to death. Well, he was already dead, but they burned him. Their attempts at mercy, to me, don't seem very merciful. <laughs> what was his crime? What was his horrible crime that he committed? He brought the Bible into the English language. <laughs> That's what he did that was wrong. His last recorded words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. The king to which he refers here is Henry VIII. Open the king of England's eyes. Three years later, the king changed his mind and through his archbishop produced the English Bible in the Coverdale version. And so that's the story of William Tyndale. When we look at the Coverdale version, and then we look at the, the, which is called the Great Bible, and then we look at the Bishop's Bible, and then the uh, next one after that is the King James Version, which we'll talk about briefly tonight. What we see is really Tyndale. What we see is a bunch of translators sitting around saying, okay, this is what the Greek says. How are we going to make this English? What did William Tyndale do? And basically copying William Tyndale's work. Because when you compare William Tyndale's Bible to even something as late as the King James Version, which is several decades later, there are so many identical passages between the two. In fact, Tyndale coined English words that didn't exist in the English language before this. 
in order to bring it into English. I mean, he was just a master linguist and an intellectual man who really put his talents to work for the service of God and lost his life for taking a stand, really a hero. Um, and I, I wish we had more time to talk about him, but we must move on because England awaits us. And after Henry had died, Edward VI reigned from 1547 to 1553. He started his reign at the great old age of nine years old, and he ruled until he was 15. And then he died of a sickness. He was a sickly child all along. But when somebody the age of Edward VI is reigning on the throne of England, you know who's really reigning? The advisors, the, the counselors. The, those are the people who are really reigning. And even so, Edward is said to have really taken an interest in Christianity and he had a very strong Protestant leaning. In fact, Edward VI reigns the most Protestant reign uh, up until that time, and certainly more Protestant than his sister who would come up next. And so he allows the printing of Protestant literature, which explodes during his time, and he comes up, maybe not him, but his, his lead religious thinkers come up with what's called the Book of Common Prayer, which I call the BCP, the Book of Common Prayer, the Book of Common Prayer is not just a list of prayers that English, in the English language to be prayed, but it's also a listing of what happens in the church service. So it has the liturgy, the scripture reading, and so on that would be followed throughout the churches in the land of England. It comes out in 1549 and then 1552, and then over time its new versions of it are released every so often, and that's how the government controls what happens in the churches through the Book of Common Prayer. And he also comes out with the 42 Articles in 1553, which is a, a confession of faith, very similar to um, the Augsburg Confession of Luther. And it, actually, Philip Melanchthon wrote it, if you remember from last time. And so uh, it's a very Protestant list of beliefs. He abolished clerical celibacy, which means that priests can get married now. And he abolished the Mass. The man really behind the curtain during all this time is named Thomas Cranmer. And he was the leading religious expert that Edward depended on. And at the age of 15, he appointed uh, his Protestant cousin, Jane Grey, to take his position as he was dying, who lasted only 13 days because his sister, Mary Tudor, Mary was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, a Spanish woman deeply Catholic, and so her daughter, Mary, is deeply Catholic as well. Edward VI is the son of Anne Boleyn, who was Protestant. Okay, so we go from Henry, who's really Catholic but no Pope, to Edward, who's super Protestant, to Mary, who is super Catholic. Okay, and the way it works in England during this period is, just like in France, you have one king, one faith. And so the people are supposed to do what the king says. And the king will actually ask the people at different times to swear allegiance. And if not, suffer the death penalty. So this is some pretty tight control in the 16th century. Very different than what we saw in Germany and then what we saw in other places. But similar to France, I guess we could say. So anyhow, Mary Tudor in 1553 takes the throne and reigns for five years until 1558. She tries to reestablish Catholicism, and people pour out of England. They flee from England, they go to the continent, 
And about 1560, which is during her, uh, two, actually two years after her reign ends, on the continent they produced the Geneva Bible. Now who do you think was in Geneva? We've talked about him before. John Calvin. The Geneva Bible is an English Bible. So in 1560, I think John Calvin had already died, but his city and his center of Protestantism, these English scholars, refugees from the time of Mary, come over to John Calvin's Geneva, and they put together an English translation of the Bible called the Geneva Bible, which comes out in 1560 and is very anti-monarchical. It's against the kings and the queens. And it has very biased, marginal notes throughout it. It's, just, it's more of what we would call a study Bible than a traditional, just, uh, verse, just the verses of the original Bible. Mary gets the name Bloody Mary because she executes 282 Protestants during her five-year reign. In fact, the guy, uh, John Fox, his uh, famous uh, Acts and Monuments, which we know as his Fox's Book of Martyrs, is written during this time and includes many of the executions of people he was uh, privy to know about. She endowed masses and married Philip II, King of Spain, which really worried the English people because they thought now if they produced an heir, the heir would be not just the king of England, but also the king of Spain, and that would somehow be a problem if you wanted to have an independent England. England didn't want to be under Spanish rule. And so when she married a Spanish king of Spain, there were, it was an anti-nationalistic thing to do. And so the people are, are getting up in arms against Mary. But she ends up dying anyhow at the age of 42 after reigning only five years, and they're not really sure what exactly she died of. Which brings us to Elizabeth. Elizabeth reigns from 1558 to 1603. Now the last three, Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth, are all siblings. They're all children of Henry. And so Elizabeth, whatever we might think of her, we can't say that she was brief. She was very long, her reign. 1558 to 1603. And so Edward's short reign and then Mary's short reign didn't have lasting impacts like Elizabeth's long reign. Because the best way you can get your improvements to the Church of England to last is for you to last and to ingrain it in the people generation after generation, and then it'll uh, stick around for a while. And that's what happens with Elizabeth. She's raised a Protestant like her mother. She never expected to come to power. And she started, I'm sorry, her mother, I, I think I misspoke earlier. Edward VI was the son of Jane Seymour. Her, her mother is Anne Boleyn. I misspoke on that. She's, but she has raised a Protestant as Anne Boleyn was a Protestant as well. She started religious for, reforms immediately. In 1559, she comes out, out with the Act of Uniformity, reestablishing the Church of England. And she feels that people will be uncomfortable with her calling herself the Supreme Head. So she changes the language to Supreme Governor, which basically means the same thing. And she uh, produces an update to the Book of Common Prayer in 1559. Also... Yeah, 1559. And then 1563, just a few years later, she comes out with the 39 Articles. The 39 Articles of Elizabeth stay around for a long time. And these are articles or statements of belief, 39 statements of belief about everything related to Christianity. And it's definitely a Protestant statement of belief, though she avoids 
the subject of predestination. Now, the Reformed people, John Calvin's followers, are very uh, committed to the doctrine of predestination, whereas Lutherans aren't and other uh, Protestants are not either. And so she just leaves that issue aside. The Pope excommunicates her and deposes her, and this has no practical effect whatsoever. In 1588, she's able to um, prove herself because the Spanish Armada comes against her and is defeated by a storm, which people take to be God's intervention. And people really rally behind Elizabeth for that. She's really a religious moderate. She doesn't want to oppress anyone. She doesn't want to force anyone to change. She wants to make it as easy as possible for as many as possible. She doesn't want to offend the Lutherans. She doesn't want to offend the Reformed people. She wants to give a place to Catholic people as much as she possibly can without changing the beliefs of everything. And so she has these sort of toned down religious policies. She executes fewer people in 45 years than Mary did in five years. Um, Calvin, in 1564, when he died, so I guess he was alive during the time of the Geneva Bible, he considered Elizabeth's England a true Reformed church, yet not as pure as one would desire. Sounds like something John Calvin would say. Which leads us into the Puritans, who are basically Calvinists who want to purify the Church of England and take it all the way to be more like Geneva to be all the way into their belief system and practice. Uh, Elizabeth, she, she's trying to do what we call a via media, via media, which, is, which means a middle way between not Catholicism and Protestantism, but a via media between Reformed and Lutheran. So she's trying to find a middle way between Lutheran and Reformed Christianity because she wants everyone to get along religiously in England. They've seen enough of this controversy, she thinks. However, the Puritans are, there's nothing more that enrages a Puritan than somebody that wants to not fight about religious matters because that's what they want. They want to purify it. They don't want to be halfway in and halfway out. They want to be 100% in and they want more preaching and worship and they want education for children and for people in the church. They want catechetical instruction where you have set questions and answers and everyone has to memorize them and we're all on the same page. And they want to eliminate traditional clothing and vestments that the clergy wear. And they want to eliminate traditional postures and gestures and images and statues in the churches. They want to take the Church of England and go all the way to a Calvinist or Reformed kind of Christianity and, and instead of kind of in this middle zone that Elizabeth is doing. And so they're very dissatisfied with her. And by the end, of, but they, they keep their peace in her reign. By the end of her reign, the Catholics are a religious minority in England. So we go from Henry, who's essentially a Catholic himself, to his daughter Elizabeth, the end of her reign, where Catholicism is actually a minority and most people are Protestants. Which brings us to James. James reigns after Elizabeth from 1603 to 1625. And in the 1610s and 1620s, a belief system known as Arminianism was coming to England from Holland, named after Jacobus Arminius. He lived from 1560 to 1609. He was a professor at the University of Leiden. 
he studied actually at Geneva under a guy named Theodore Beza, who was the one that took over for John Calvin. And this uh, Jacobus Arminius, who I just call it Arminius, he started to question this hard predestination viewpoint. And he didn't really like it. And so he, he, his system is, is almost a mirror opposite of John Calvin's system. And what ends up happening is he says people have free will. He says God doesn't decide who's going to be saved and not saved all ahead of time, that people have a part in this decision-making process. And he has a lot of controversy back home in Holland because in, uh, the, among the Dutch people, John Calvin's views are the dominant views at this time. And so he has a lot of uh, um, defending to do. And a man uh, by the name of Franciscus Gomeris ends up attacking Arminius over and over and pulling him before the court. And Arminius having to defend himself. And he was really, uh, he wasn't, he was kind of a mellow guy. He wasn't looking to rock the boat and get into all these fights and change the world. And it just kind of wore him out. And he ended up dying really young probably as a consequence of all the turmoil and, and uh, controversy that came about. But he is a man of character. In 1602, for example, a plague had swept through Amsterdam, where he was a pastor. And Arminius would go into the houses of people who had the plague, and he would give them water. And he would supply their neighbors with what they needed to take care of these, these victims of the plague back in 1602. So he, he was, he was a, a somebody that at the risk of his life, was willing to take care of people. And he had uh, a belief against predestination. He was what we would call a free will um, uh, advocate. And this system comes to be known as Arminianism, the idea of free will instead of predestination. And so in 1618 and 1619, they hold a synod, a synod of Dort, which happened a decade after Arminius had died, in which... They, uh, the Calvinists come up with the five uh, points that we're familiar with today. I already shared them with you our first time together. Uh, the tulip system, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. This doctrinal system comes as a result of a reaction against Arminius saying, no, we got free will, man. So, and that Christ died for everyone and so on. These are uh, some of the points that they argued about. We're going to talk about John Wesley later, but John Wesley picks up the, the ideas of Arminius and the Methodists uh, become major believers in Arminian doctrine of free will. But anyhow, back to James. James, during his reign, these ideas of Arminius come into England and James does nothing to stop them, King James. He doesn't uh, fight against it whatsoever. And in 1611, he comes out with a revision of the Bishop's Bible, which was an earlier English version that he authorizes, which we know today is the King James Version of 1611. And this version is revising some of the older things, and it's, it's designed to be a competitor to the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible came out in 1560 and had all these marginal notes against the king. And so the King James Version has this nice preface that extols the virtues of King James and how he has the right to rule and that God has given him that right. But then other than that, it doesn't have any footnotes or marginal notes or study notes whatsoever. It's a, it's a, a clean text. And 
He wants his people to use that instead of the Geneva Bible. But the people that end up coming to America despise the King James Version because they didn't like the Church of England and the English government telling the church what to do. So in America, the King James Bible was very unpopular. When they first got here, they all liked the Geneva Bible. And then at some point, I'm not sure exactly why, that shifted and the King James Bible became very popular in America. And that's a story for another day. But it was a translation done. They did an excellent job on it. Highly literal translation to the original Hebrew and the Greek. And so King James says that kings should be free from restraint. He advocates a doctrine called absolute rule. This is like Henry before him. Kings should be, should be the absolute rulers, that God gives them that right to be absolute rulers. They shouldn't have to answer to others. Which brings us now to Charles I. Charles I follows King James in 1625, and he reigns until 1649. And this guy, if you thought King James angered the Puritans, who were trying to purify the church by uh, instituting Calvinist practices and beliefs, Charles I really angered them. Because not only did he marry a French Catholic, but he filled, when bishops, uh, bishoprics got emptied, he would fill them with Arminian supporters. He attacked Calvinism. He openly tolerated Catholics at his court. Well, his wife was one, so um, that makes sense. And he has the clergy wear a white gown instead of the traditional Genevan black gown in church. And so now he's, he's looking to, to do a via media, not between the Lutheran and the Reform, but now Charles I is doing a via media between Catholic and Protestant. And so going to church in the Church of England would, be, would feel more Catholic during his reign than it would have felt uh, in the reigns of previous kings and queens. So he tries to do everything he can without involving Parliament, because the Parliament had a lot of Puritans in it, and they really didn't like the way Charles was running things. He had no Parliament from 1629 till 1640, which is a very long time. And finally, he needed to raise taxes to pay for a war with Scotland. And the only way you can raise taxes is to call a Parliament. They meet, and what ends up happening is well, they meet, he dismisses them after three weeks, then he decides he really needs them, he gets them back, and they never go home. They last from 1640 to 1653. The parliamentary session just doesn't go home. And uh, so during this period, huge chaos happens in England. This is what we call the English Revolution. It's a civil war. Uh, 1642 to 1646 is the first part of it. Uh, in 1641, we first start having Presbyterians who are, uh, they're basically very similar to Protestants, except for they want a Presbyterian form of government. Now, if you remember, there are three kinds of polity. There is Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Congregational. Episcopal is related to the word for bishop. This is the traditional Catholic polity. Polity is how you govern the church. Who's, how do you do church? Who's in charge of what? The way Episcopal polity works is you have a bishop that's in charge, then you have priests under the bishop, and then you have deacons under the priests, and there's a clear hierarchy working all the way up. This is the way it was in the Catholic Church, and this is the way it is in the Church of England to this day, which is why the Church of England in America is called the Episcopalian Church. 
We'll get to that in a minute. Number two form of church government is Presbyterian. Presbyter is an elder. This is where a group of elders rules over the church and makes decisions. And then you have congregational, where the people make the decisions. Essentially, they vote on what should be done in the church. And so these are three different forms of church government. And in England, the Presbyterians are Puritans who want to get rid of the bishop structure of the Church of England, and they want to install elders' structure instead. And so they split from the Puritans, and they want to get rid of the bishops in 1641. There's a civil war that happens between the Royalists, which is Charles I and his supporters, and the Parliamentarians, the people that are supporting the Parliament. And in 1646, the Parliament wins, and they capture Charles I. Also in 1646, we get the production of what's called the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is a very Calvinist confession of faith in the English language that is um, determinative for especially Presbyterians from then on. Reformed people in the English language, really. Uh, Parliament adopts this Calvinist statement instead of the 39 Articles of Elizabeth. And then we have another two years, 1647 to 1649, where we have tremendous turmoil in England. And it ends with the execution of the king, totally unheard of, the execution of Charles I by the parliament, um, the abolition of the monarchy. We're not going to have any more kings and queens. They're nothing but trouble. Imagine England saying that. That's what they said in 1649. And the abolition of the House of the Lords. House of Lords is gone. We're just going to have the House of Commons. In America, it's the Senate and the Congress. In England, it's the House of Lords and the House of Commons. They got rid of the House of Lords. It's like us getting rid of the Senate. I mean, it's not a small thing. It's a major political change. And then we have, stepping into the power vacuum, the primary political leader called the Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell, who is in charge from 1649, at the end of this uh, turmoil in England, up until the year 1658. He's the military leader of the parliamentary army. Kind of looks like it in his armor there. And he was a congregationalist. So he liked the idea that the people would make the decision in church. In 1654, he established a state church without a book of common prayer. He was more tolerant than the Presbyterian Church, and he even readmitted Jews into England, which had not been allowed in England since the 13th century. In the 1640s and 50s, his tolerance during Oliver Cromwell's reign, and also prior to it, uh, during all this political chaos, allows for the proliferation of a lot of radical, non-Church of England groups that we're going to look at after the break, uh, especially the Baptists, the Quakers, and the Unitarians, but also others, even more radical than any of those. So Cromwell ends up dying of natural causes, and what replaces him is a Puritan parliament. When the Puritans get in charge, it's serious, let me tell you, because Sunday becomes a day where you're not allowed to do anything. No tennis, no theater going, just read your Bible, go to church, He's very unpopular with the population, the parliamentary, uh, the Puritan Parliament. And within two years, the people rebel against Parliament and restore the monarchy of Charles II. And so then we have Charles II. So we have a king in England again after a lapse of uh, several years. 
And so Charles II restores the parliament, and he persecutes the Puritans, and he restores the Book of Common Prayer, and he favored Catholicism, though popular sentiment was against him. He's kind of moving the Church of England more towards Catholicism, but not too much because he just got put back in power, and we've had his predecessor had his head cut off by the, the, the parliament uh, and the people. So he's not rocking the boat too much. Any meeting for prayer with more than five people had to use the Book of Common Prayer, starting in the reign of Charles II, 1660 to 1685. Uh, the Eucharist has to be done according to the Book of Common Prayer, and everyone has to swear allegiance to the king. I bet he was a paranoid guy. Imagine that, coming back after the chaos of all those years. After him, we have James II, who reigns from 1685 to 1688. He wants greater toleration because he actually was a Catholic. And so in England during these years, just imagine, what, we're going to look at this after the break, imagine what it was like living through this period where you have a Catholic and then a Protestant and then a Catholic and then somebody that's halfway in between two different kinds of Protestantism and then somebody that's moving it back towards Catholicism. And, and it's just all this back and forth. And then you have the Puritans take over the Parliament. And now we're going to be hardcore Calvinist. And then people don't like that, so they, you know, it just must have been tiring. So then we, after James II, we have William and Mary, who reigned from 1689 to 1702, although Mary uh, is just till 1694. The Parliament invite William of Orange, who was a Dutch king, to invade England and take over. I guess they didn't like James II very much. And so James flees, and William becomes the king of England. And the king's power is from here forth limited by Parliament. So this, this is really a, a huge moment in the history of England. In 1689, when they get rid of James, they bring in William of Orange, William and Mary, and they start limiting what the king is allowed to do. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that James I was in power and he claimed absolute rule. <laughs> and now we have the parliament really calling the shots. And so in 1689, we have the Toleration Act, where everyone has to accept William and Mary. They have to accept the 39 Articles, going back to Queen Elizabeth, and we're not worried about polity, whether you're Episcopalian, Presbyterian, or Congregationalist in your beliefs. We're all part of the Church of England, and it's going to be okay. Which brings us now to Scotland. I've just got a couple minutes to talk about Scotland. Our main man there is John Knox. But Scotland, I've got to rewind the tape a little bit, go back to the years in the 1520s, even uh, during the, the reign of King Henry, where we started tonight, and talk about how Protestantism started to arrive in Scotland in the 1520s, and how there was evangelical literature pouring into Scotland, and there was attacks of corruption of the church and the clergy, and there were acts of iconoclasm. Do, do you guys remember what iconoclasm is? It's where they were breaking the statues, breaking uh, paintings, anything physical in a church that they considered idolatry, tearing it down, getting rid of, cleaning out the churches of Catholicism is how they would say it. Uh, how the Catholics would say it would be mob violence and vandalism. Uh, and so that's iconoclasm happening in Scotland. Really, Scotland has an interesting story of how it becomes Protestant. It really happens within the, within the year of 1559 to 1560 because of three things. You have the slow growth of Protestant ideas. You have big-time politics going on in international relations. And number three, you have the preaching of John Knox. 
John Knox lives from 1514 to 1572, and he is a very strong, uh, we could almost say belligerent, ready for a fight at the drop of a hat, preacher, very assertive personality. And so Henry VIII had tried to get James V, who was the king of Scotland, to go along with him in breaking from Rome. James V is like, ah, I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, and so James V instead got married to a French uh, woman named Mary of Guise, solidifying Scotland's traditional alliance with France. Now, France is Catholic, and Scotland is going to have an alliance with a super Catholic country like France, then Scotland is going to have to be Catholic as well. However, Protestantism is growing. People are learning about it. There's iconoclasm breaking out. And so we have this gentleman, Cardinal David Beaton, in 1546, starts persecuting the Protestants. He feels that we have this league with France. We don't want to be embarrassed by all these Protestant ideas running around. Let's persecute those Protestants. And what ends up happening is that in 1547, a year later, um, there's a takeover of David Beaton's castle, St. Andrew's Castle, and they, they kill the cardinal. And one of the people involved in this who starts preaching at this time and is found in the castle in 1547 is John Knox. John Knox um, is inside St. Andrew's ca Castle when they, uh, the French finally come and take it over. So Scotland is allied with the French. So when Scotland is in trouble, they call on French troops. And the French troops come in and deal with the problem in Scotland. And they, capture, they recapture this castle. And they find John Knox in there. And they... They uh, take him as a prisoner of war and make him a galley slave for two years. A galley slave is a rower at the bottom of a ship. What was that? Ben-Hur had the galley slaves? I'm sure the technology was a little different a thousand years later. But there are still galley slaves. We don't have the steam engine yet. So there are still galley slaves. He's a galley slave for two years, and then he's finally released. In 1549, Knox is released by the French, and he goes to England. He causes a bunch of trouble there in 1552 by objecting to the prayer book, and he refused the bishopric. They, Edward, during Edward's reign, they try to make John Knox one of the bishops because John Knox is a Protestant. During Edward's reign, they're super Protestant. They're like, a guy like John Knox, getting him to be one of the bishops in the Church of England, that would really further our cause. John Knox says, no, I don't, I don't like your prayer book. And, and, I hate, and he had a, a virulent hatred of Catholicism. In 1553, when Mary, super Catholic Mary, comes to power, John Knox flees to Geneva and spends time with John Calvin. In 1555 to 1556, Knox goes back to Scotland and spurs on the Protestants there in Scotland. He's kicked out of Scotland, and they burn him in effigy. So they don't have his actual body, so they have to burn a resemblance of him by the Scottish bishops. In 1558... Mary, if you recall, Mary's still in charge. 1558 is her last year when she dies. Nobody knows she's going to die. Everybody assumes she's just going to carry on with her ultra-Catholic, nasty persecution of the Protestants for a long time. So John Knox gets this idea to write a book called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. <laughs> he doesn't want there to be women rulers. And that's what the book's all about. Uh, and so this is political resistance theory. And what ends up happening is Mary dies. And by the time his book gets to England, Elizabeth's in charge, who he wants her to favor him. But she reads the book, and she's outraged. And she says, you're not coming to England. 
get out of here. And so he kind of loses an opportunity there. In 1558, Mary Stuart, the Queen of Scots, married the French Prince Francis II. So again, we have a Scottish queen marrying a French prince. And this causes a lot of people to start worrying about how maybe the French are going to take over Scotland. This is the second marriage alliance we have with them. And now it's always when the male is from a foreign country. You know, when the king is from a foreign country, they worry about this. And so in 1559, so the, this was an unpopular move for Mary, Mary Stuart to do. And so people are starting to worry about her and her leadership and a French takeover of Scotland. Meanwhile, there's these Protestant ideas are in this anti-Catholic preaching of Knox is going on this whole time. In 1559, he comes back to Scotland and he rails against Catholicism and against the French. And people really listen to John Knox. And also in 1559, what ends up happening is Henry II of France dies, who was the king of France. And then Francis II also dies, who our Mary here had just married. And so France is in turmoil. France is not going to worry about Scotland. They're worrying about their own ruler. And at this time, Elizabeth seizes the opportunity in 1560 to send troops to Scotland to aid the Protestants there to overthrow uh, the, the Catholics and install what's called a Re Reformation Parliament, a Scottish Reformation pa Parliament. And they uh, favor Calvinism, the reform belief system in Scotland. And so when 1561 came around, Mary Stuart finally comes back to Scotland from France. She couldn't change things. She remains a Catholic, but she accepts the fact that Scotland is now Protestant. And so I know I just kind of rushed through that, but I just wanted to get that out there about Scotland and how interwoven we have politics and religion and popular you know, feelings about these things. I realized that was a sprint through English church history and Scottish church history. And there's so much more to say about so many of these movements. But next time, you'll learn about dissidents in England. So this time we covered the perspective of the leaders, of the kings and the queens. Next time, we'll look at the perspective of the underbelly, the people who are not part of the Church of England, the Baptists, the Quakers, the Biblical Unitarians, and a number of other smaller groups that led significant movements during this very same period. So stay tuned for that next week. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, remember, the truth has nothing to fear.